Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 is, is where we are. Um, if you don't know me, I'm George Boomer. I haven't been here in a few weeks. Uh, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be back. Uh, we were on vacation in uh, Sedona, Arizona with our family. Uh, all of the boomers were there, and we had a great time. Uh, the week prior, I was actually at a pastor's retreat um, in the Outer Banks, and so we are back. I'm so grateful for Mike Galoto three weeks ago uh, speaking. I got to tell you this funny story about Mike Galoto, though. This is funny. The kids are all leaving, so it's okay. Um, and uh, so I said, hey, Mike, do you need a, an over-the-ear mic, you know? And he says, no, I don't need it. He goes, some people walk around on the stage, and other people have things to say. <laughs> Hurt my heart a little bit. It really did. He won't be back for a long time. <laughs> so uh, I do appreciate Ryan and Tyler not, um, you know, bringing, you know, character flaws against me or anything like that as they preach. I do appreciate what they have done. So we're in the Gospel of John. So we're in John chapter uh, 5. I'm going to start with verse 18. Now, last week, uh, Tyler was speaking about the healing at the pool on the Sabbath. So Jesus, at this point, is giving uh, people a lot of problems. He's giving the, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, they're upset with who Jesus is. Uh, he's healing on the Sabbath. He's making claims about himself, and he's doing these miracles. And so the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're not really sure what to make of who Jesus is. They're confused by these things. But they're, they're mad. They're ticked off because they feel as if he's doing things that he should not be doing. So, uh, after he heals the man at the, you know, at, at the pool on the Sabbath, which is why, you know, Tyler's a pool boy and all that kind of stuff. You guys heard that last week. You know, uh, in verse 18, it says this, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So there are two issues here. Two issues that are now in front of us with what Jesus has done, with the signs that he has given, but also uh, with what he is saying about himself. And what we have is in between sort of the narrative accounts uh, within the signs, because uh, next week we'll get, or actually next week we'll get to the witnesses, and then the following week we'll get back to um, the narrative portion. Uh, but today we sort of have what I would call the color commentary on what we have just seen, Okay. Now, if you, if you watch football, you um, know that sometimes you'll watch a play, and then you'll get a little commentary about the play after the play has occurred. Now, if you don't watch football, I'm sorry, this isn't for you, all right? But here it is. So after this, as a matter of fact, what I love watching is, um, I love it when there's like a goal line play, and depending on who you're rooting for, uh, there's a, a play and the guy scores a touchdown, and if you're rooting against the touchdown, then you would say, that's an illegal pick. At least that's what like Tony Romo or you know, somebody would tell you. Now, if you're if you were for that play, you're like, no, no, that's a completely good thing. That's called a rub, not a pick, right? I mean, some of you understand what I'm saying. Some of you just look totally like you don't understand what's going on. That's okay, all right? But it's commentary so that we understand what is going on in the midst of the game. In the same way, John chapter 5, Jesus is giving a commentary about who he is and what he is saying to the people about himself. Now, he uses this term, and he uses it 25 times within uh, the Gospel of John, and he uses this term, truly, truly. And this is the term, amen, amen, where we get amen, amen. Matter of fact, we say amen at the end of a prayer. And when we say amen at the end of a prayer, what we're saying is, so be it. 
I affirm that. I confirm that. I agree with that prayer. But Jesus uses it in a slightly different way. As a matter of fact, only in John, and again, he uses it 25 times in the Gospel of John, he uses it doubly, truly, truly, verily, verily. Um, He might also say, most assuredly. That's some of the translations that we see. But here, I want to divide this passage from verse 19 through 29 up into the three truly, truly statements that we see. The first truly, truly statement will have, you know, four fours, okay, four fours. And then that'll be a a lengthier section, and then we have two other brief truly, truly sections. So truly, 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 truly. We've seen this used in this way, but but I want us to think about it in, in this way. When Jesus is saying truly, truly, he's saying this. He's saying, believe me, this is true. He's actually saying, I know this is true firsthand. Since many of these comments are on heavenly, spiritually, or spiritual or godly issues, Jesus' use of verily, verily, or truly, truly, is part of his consistent claim of divinity. Jesus is not merely aware of these truths. He is the one who originated them. So what we see here is when Jesus says, truly, truly, often, almost all the time, 25 times in the Gospel of John, he's making some sort of claim about his divinity, about who he is as the Messiah and Savior of the world. So when he says, truly, truly, or verily, verily, that's what we should be thinking about. Um, As a matter of fact, I I just thought it would be funny. Eugene Peterson, who writes a book called The Message, which is a a sort of a transliteration of the Bible, I was kind of curious as to what Eugene Peterson would say regarding his use of amen, amen, or verily, verily, or truly, truly. And here's what Eugene Peterson says. Um, In verse 19, he says this, I'm telling you this straight. Or in John chapter 5, verse 24, he says this, it's urgent that you listen carefully to this. Or In verse 25, it says, it's urgent that you get this right. I want you to understand this. I want you to understand this truth. Here's where we are. So having said that, um, let's read the word of God together from verse uh, 18 all the way down through 29. Hear the word of the Lord. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show you show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is 
coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Okay, so this section that is, again, bounded by this term, truly, truly, now again, some places that we've already seen truly, truly in the Gospel of John would be like in John chapter 3, verse 11, where it says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Um, we've seen that. We also see in, in verse uh, 3, verse 3, sorry, I went backwards on you. You know, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God you know, speaking to Nicodemus. Or in chapter one, where it begins, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now again, every time Jesus uses the term truly, truly, he's talking about his divinity. He's talking about, I am the Messiah. Please listen to what I'm saying. As a matter of fact, um, this idea that we, we see here um, is that Jesus is, is saying, I am the one that you've been waiting for. You know, when we think about the advent of Christ, you know, there are really two advents of Christ when we think about it. I mean, we celebrate the first advent, but there's also a second advent for us to come. And and part of this passage is talking about the second advent. You know, J.C. Ryle, uh, in his expository thoughts on Mark's gospel, says this the first time, he came the first time in weakness, a tender infant born of a poor woman in the manger at Bethlehem, unnoticed, unhonored, and scarcely known. He shall come the second time in royal dignity, with the armies of heaven around him to be known, recognized, and feared by all the people of the earth. What Jesus is doing is Jesus is revealing himself to the leaders, to those who are listening to him. J.C. Ryle also says this, he says, nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father. His divine commission and authority and the proofs of his Messiahship as we find in this discourse. To me, it seems one of the deepest things in the Bible. Chapter 5, verses 19 through 29. Jesus, again, is saying all of these things, and he's going to say them in this way, but the reality is this, that we all have to deal with the person of Jesus in our life. Who is Jesus to you? Is he your Savior? Do you view him as a, a moral teacher? Do you view him as maybe a prophet? Or maybe you're not sure. Josias Lewis said this, He says, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said regarding this section would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Let us come with an Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to do so. So again, 
let's, uh, let's break those um, trulies up as we look at them. Again, in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 19, the first is this. You see, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Now, we're going to break that truly up. There are four fours, or, or four, the, uh, the, the Greek is gar, uh, so four F-O-R's, okay, that break this up. The first two fours that we see within this truly statement are talking about the relationship that Jesus has with the Father. The second two fours that we see within the passage deal with the idea that Jesus has been been given authority by the Father to do all that he is doing. So relationship and authority. First of which, notice what the first four is but only what the Father sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. We see this in, in, the, in the idea of, you know, what Jesus is seeing the Father do, that is what the Son is doing. So when, when, when the Lord God is, is judging rightly, and He's full of holiness, and He's full of righteousness, and He is acting upon those things, that's what Jesus is doing. He's not saying that he is apart from God, but he is joining himself to the Father in the nature of the Trinity so that we will understand that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is God, but he's also the Son, and that the Son is the Father, or the Son is co-eternal and and co-equal with the Father. Again, we believe that there is one God, but that he is three persons. So for, like Father, like Son, for whatever the Father does— that the Son does likewise. I mean, think about this, and this is something that we understand very easily. We know that little boys, and and I love watching uh, uh, little boys, like, uh, mimic their fathers, right? Like, you just see it. Like, if you see a dad, and he's got his little boy, and he spits, that little boy spits too, right? I mean, it's just, it's just, uh, it's kind of cool. I think it's very sweet, actually. Um, But we teach our children these things, right? You know, like we, we teach our children that we model for them what they are called to do. And as they see us modeling, now whether that's good or bad, we are modeling for our children. We see this like father, like son, you know, or like family, like family. Like for example, you know, in our family from my, from my father, you know, like my, we would always, you know, have a particular type of Christmas tree, right? And that Christmas tree is, you know, a Fraser fir. And it had to be, Fraser Furs didn't grow anywhere near us, but we had to have a Fraser Fur, A.B.'s Fraser I, I actually knew the genus and species of the tree, okay? You know, we had to have that. And I remember, you know, growing up and having this tree. And so what did I do when I was teaching my children about what type of tree that they needed so that it wouldn't hurt them? Is I taught them A.B.'s Fraser Eye, right? They needed Fraser fir. Like, that's what we're looking for. Even though my little brother grows scotch pines and white pines on a Christmas tree farm, I'm like, we don't want any of that. We're only doing this, right? This is what we have, right? So, you know, I remember, you know, and so we're teaching our children this. And I remember at one point, at one point where I began to speak heresy to my family. And I said, do you think we should get a fake tree? I got to tell you, my daughter, I'm not going to tell you which one, but it's the younger one. Um, <laughs> she was so upset that we would blaspheme the Christmas tree. It was like, I had an old Oklahoma friend, he says, it was like a 
cougar in a phone booth. You know, it was, it was not good because she, she basically told me that I was, you know, heresy. Now, in the same way, we are like father, like son. So when Jesus sees the father doing that which is right and just, he will do the same thing same thing. Secondly, in terms of the relationship with Jesus and the Father, it says this in verse 20, the second four is this, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will show him so that you may marvel. Now this is what's beautiful here in verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. There's this, this idea of apprenticeship here, if you will, that the, the father is revealing all of his secrets to the son, and he does so because he loves the son. He doesn't want to withhold anything back from his child, from his beloved. And, and what we see here is this idea that there's this nature of relationship between the father and the son, and it is joined by love. There's a constant loving communion with the father. The affectionate father is revealing and showing all of the trade secrets to the son. Now, in, in a similar way, you think about the idea of apprenticeship or, or whatever you're doing, um, and if you were to go to you know, maybe somebody who was an artisan and say, hey, teach me all of your secrets, and you weren't family to him, he might go, no, I'm not going to show you all of these things. I'm not going to show you how I do what I do. There's no relationship there. But if that artisan or that, that, that craftsman, if his son came to him and if he was teaching him, and if there was unity and love within the relationship, then he's going to teach him how to hold the instrument. He's going to teach them how to, to bend the, the metal or the leather and to do everything just as he should. This reminds us of the idea of Proverbs chapter 23, verse 26 where it says, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Now this, the relationship of Jesus and the Father is so intimate and loving and connected. The difficulty with, with this section for this four is that when we see the perfect relationship and love and harmony and accord, is that oftentimes as a father and as a son, I recognize that I falter and fail to do that with my own children and probably with my father, but then ultimately with my heavenly father. As a matter of fact, when you, when you think about, um, I mean, I'm challenged deeply by this proverb where it says, my son, like, think about this. Can you say this? If you're a dad here, I'm not trying to get into a Father's Day sermon or anything like that, but if you're a dad here, or if you're a mom here, can you say, my son or my daughter, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways? Because the ways, and, and what, what the writer of Proverbs is saying there is I want you to observe my ways so you will walk in my ways because my ways lead towards righteousness. My ways lead toward God. The difficulty with this section of scripture is that oftentimes I recognize that my own frustration and complaining and irritability and, and all of those things do not lead my children towards the Lord 
but they lead towards really me creating ruts behind me that my children will follow in. How many of you have seen your children um, grumble and complain and you go, I know where they got that from? My wife. No, I'm just kidding. You, know, you, know, you didn't say that at all, right? I mean, you, you, you see this, right? Like you see your children and they are mirror images of who you are because you are modeling for them and you have taken their heart and you have led them along and they see what's going on and, and they see how you're living and they begin to model their lives after that. I mean, I think there's a call for us. There's a call for us asking ourselves, are we pursuing our Father's work like Jesus so that then we, like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ? You follow me. You follow me to church. Follow me toward in the Word of God. Follow me in prayer. Follow me in the fruit of the Spirit. Follow me as I love your mother well. Follow me as I, as I grant peace, as, I, I, as I'm the chief repenter, as I, as I love those um, who love the Lord. Am I doing that? Am I creating good ruts behind me? Because the reality is, you're creating ruts for your children, right? Like, that's, that's the truth. Are they going to be good ruts? Or are they going to be ruts that lead over a cliff? Jesus had a relationship with the Father that was full of love. And the, and the Father loved him so much that he was showing himself all that he is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Meaning, you ain't seen nothing yet. Like, you think healing at the pool is going to be a big deal? You think turning water into wine is a big deal? He goes, just wait. The Gospel of John is going to unfold in this way so that you see even greater things. Those are the two fours that we see that regard relationship within this verily, verily, or this truly, truly statement. Now, the other two that we see is, look at verse 21. The the third four that we see is four, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. That third four is that the Son gives life. Now, rabbis had this, this understanding that there, there were three keys that only uh, the Lord God would have. And it is the giving of rain, it is life in the womb, and it is the resurrection of the dead. And only God had the authority to do those things. And what Jesus is saying in the midst of John chapter 5 is he's saying, the Father has given me authority. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus is essentially in that statement, in that statement in verse 21, he is equating himself with God. And so either he is a blasphemer or he is God. And he's going to reveal that to us. The fourth four. Notice what he says in the fourth four. It is um, in verse 22. It says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And you're like, whoa. So not only is the Father not judging in the midst of his holiness and his righteousness, but he's given that authority to the Son, to Jesus, who calls himself the Son of Man. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Essentially, what Jesus is saying there is, if you think you honor the Lord, the Father, then you need to honor me as well. Again, he's equating himself with God, not only through the relationship that he has with God, but also with the authority that has been given to him by the Father. 
And he goes on to say, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So again, there's this idea of judgment and, and given the ability to, to bring life. So whoever hears, um, again, um, there's, this, there's this idea that we think about judgment and we think about the afterlife and we think about those kind of things. And what I find is um, this idea of judgment, this idea of heaven, this idea of hell, there's a lot of people who are very, very confused about this stuff. As a matter of fact, if, if you were to go outside and you were to ask people to please define what heaven, ha- what heaven is like, what hell is like, you'll probably get as many answers as you have individuals. Because there's a lot of muddied, you know, confusion out there. Um, one of the glorious things about being Presbyterian, and you should all laugh there, okay? Uh, one of the glorious things about being Presbyterian is we have this thing called the Westminster Confession of Faith which gives us a summary statement of what we believe regarding afterlife. I think this is a really succinct, very devotional. Uh, Again, the Westminster Confession of Faith was meant to be read as a devotional, not as a wooden doctrine. But in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 32, section 1, it says, of the state of men after death and of the resurrection of the dead, it says this, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens where they, are, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. So that's what we believe, right? From Scripture, this is what we believe, that people, when they die, those who who believe, the souls of believers do at their death go to be with the Lord, where we see His glory. We are made perfect, and we await the resurrection of our bodies. But the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies— the scripture acknowledges none. What do we believe? We believe that there will be a judgment. And who is that judgment? Um, who gives judgment? It is the son. Now, just as, um, <laughs> just as Eugene Peterson said, hey, it's urgent you listen to this. Listen carefully to this. We get to the next truly in verse 24. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Now, that's the good news. That's the gospel, gospel. He could say gospel, gospel, or he could say truly, truly. But what he's saying is if you hear my words and you believe that I'm the, the one who you know, died the death for you, then you have passed from judgment into life. You have, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly. Now, here's the deal. <laughs> we have a tremendous amount of skepticism out there right now. Our whole world is filled with people who either think that there is not a God, or they are suspicious, or they ask the question, how can I know that this really is the Lord? How can I really be sure that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, like you Christians say? Tremendous amounts of skepticism here. 
How do I know this Jesus thing is true? How can I take the words of Jesus as true and factual? What do I do when the world's wisdom comes into conflict with the words of Jesus? What do I do when someone's personal story doesn't align with the truth of the Bible? You have people who are doubting that today that you know of? I mean, there very well might be people here today who feel the same way. But there's also a group of people out there who I would call the doubters. (laughs) And these are people who are believers, but there are times in their life where they go, is this true? Is this true? Have I been waking up for decades of my life to go to church and spend time with these people, and yet sometimes I feel like I'm doubting whether or not Jesus is true? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know that there are many of you who go through periods of doubt, periods of struggle. Now, let me just say that along with, um, I just read from the Westminster Confession of Faith, I don't know if I've ever quoted it more than two or three times in a sermon, but um, what we do find is this, is that the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 18 has a whole chapter on the assurance of grace and salvation within um, the Westminster Confession of Faith. All chapter 18, it's like you know, three, three different sections. And you go, well, why would the, the Westminster divines have a whole chapter on the assurance of salvation? And it's this, because we doubt and we struggle to believe. And there are some times where the most honest prayer that we utter is, Lord, help me in my unbelief. The Westminster Confession um, says it like this, um, which I think is, is really, um, which is, I think, really, really helpful. In, in, in chapter 18, verse 1, it says, or section 1, it says, Nevertheless, those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus love him sincerely and strive to live in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, a hope that shall never make them ashamed. But then it goes on to say in, in section Three um, of chapter 18, and I think that this is where a lot of people find themselves. A lot of people find themselves. But that a true believer may wait long and contend with many difficulties before he partakes of it. This idea of assurance. Yet because he is enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given to him by God, he may without any extraordinary revelation attain this assurance by a proper use of the ordinary means of grace. It is therefore the duty of everyone. Okay, this is, this is where it gets like, this is where I'm preaching from the Westminster Confession, okay? So if you're doubting and you're struggling in your doubt, here's what the confession says that you must do or you should do, Okay. It is therefore the duty of everyone to be very diligent in making certain that God has called and chosen him. By such diligence, his heart may grow in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties which obedience to God requires, the proper fruits of this assurance. This is far from inclining men to carelessness. Now, um, Craig uh, Vander or Van Dixhorn says this regarding this, like what are those things that we're supposed to be doing, right? He says this, if you are a professing Christian, now lacking assurance of your salvation, pay attention to the preaching of the word. Got that? All right, got that? All right. Some of you all should, that was a lot funnier than it was. Okay, you know, pay attention to the preaching of the word and turn to the Lord in prayer. 
Remain in the church and make full use of the sacraments so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Only then will you find yourself being rooted and established in love. Only then will you find the power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and how high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Only then, as Scripture promises, will you be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You know, again, we, we, we take the ordinary means, coming to church and, and being in fellowship and prayer, and that's what roots us in our union with Christ. You know, when people begin to, you know, begin to, to miss worship and miss community and miss communion, and, and they disregard the sacraments, then they feel very far away from the Lord, and it just perpetuates itself. Notice what it says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. The last truly, truly, and I'll make this one brief. Um, there's this idea, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. This is the resurrection story here. You know, that Jesus has been given the power to raise people from the dead. Now he's going to illustrate that in John chapter 11 when he, when he resurrects Lazarus. But what he's saying right here is he's saying that truly, truly, that the voice of God, he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. That son of man is a, a technical term referring back to Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel is in this vision and he sees this vision and he says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him this son of man, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. I mean, when you look at that, you go, oh my goodness, this is the ancient of days who is giving all authority to the son of man. And Jesus is saying, I am the son of man. So again, why are the Jews seeking to kill Jesus? Because he says stuff like this. But he backs it up. He backs it up with the power. He backs it up with the signs that we have seen. You see, Jesus, when he comes to judge, let me quote Richard Phillips. And this is startling, but I want you to think about Jesus as, as judge here. J Jesus' judgment has the final goal of glorifying God by doing his will. So when Jesus brings judgment... He's actually glorifying God's holiness and his righteousness by doing his will. When we stand before Jesus, his motive will not be our well-being, but God's will and glory. If we stand in our sins, he will glorify God by our eternal condemnation. And if we have been cleansed by his blood, Christ the judge will glorify God by declaring our justification. This is a comforting thought to those who trust in Jesus because our sins have already been punished on the cross. It is not merely God's grace, but also God's justice that grants us a legal claim to heaven. 
You see, Jesus' judgment is all about glorifying the Father. And if we are found in Christ, joined to Christ, then we will have life eternal. And we have no, no fear of death. Thomas Watson said this, speaking of the, the idea of death, he goes, he's an old Puritan, what hurt does death but take us from among the fiery serpents and place us among angels? What hurt does it do but to close, clothe us with a robe of immortality? Charles Spurgeon, speaking of death, said it like this, death, what is it? It is the waiting room where we will robe ourselves for immortality. Death is the gate of life. I will not fear to die then because Jesus is my Savior. Brothers and sisters, as we think about the table in front of us, we see the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. You know, the church has these signs and seals of the covenant of grace, and they remind us that, that we are saved by grace alone through Christ alone. These signs are given so that we will be reminded of all that he has done. The Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. My blood. 